here tonight and go to 1 John chapter number uh, 2. We took a break last week uh, from our series because we were doing the uh, Valentine thing, because uh, last Wednesday night was Valentine's Day. And so this week we are doing uh, our series in 1 John and uh, looking forward to that. It's going to be a blessing. Okay. Uh, if you didn't get a handout, uh, they are on the back uh, table there. I encourage you to grab one of those if you didn't grab one on your way in and uh, they'll be helpful. Uh, we'll have obviously on the screens the blanks and things for you to fill in uh, that hopefully will be helpful as we move through this. Uh, tonight's sermon is very good, uh, not because my sermon is just a great text. Um, and, and that's important about any preaching. Um, I, I learned sometimes I could even be listening to bad preaching. You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes the preaching isn't as good as it should be. And you listen to bad preaching, but if it's a good text, you, you read the text and you could be just edified and encouraged just from the Word of God just by reading it. And so this is one of those, even if the deliverer's botching everything, there's a good text we're looking at here tonight. And so I trust it'll be a blessing and a help uh, to you this evening. So 1 John Chapter number two, if you're able to, let's stand together as we read God's word this evening. First John chapter number two. First John chapter two and verse number 15 says this, love not the world. Everyone gets that part down. The second part I think we miss sometimes, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this isn't the only place in Scripture it says that. It's kind of an exclusive thing. If you love this one, it means you don't love this one. If you love this one, it means you don't love this one. So John's just simply showing an exclusivity to this. To love God simply means you don't love the things that God hates. Okay? So then he says this in verse number 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So kind of just more, instead of a test here tonight, just kind of put this more in the form of a statement, which is this, love the Father. Now, we can take this in a negative light and say, don't love the world, but I love the positive spin of this, which is this, we have the great opportunity to love Him because He first loved us. So love the Father. May God bless you with His word. You can be seated, and thank you for standing in honor of the Scriptures. <clears throat> there is nothing more enjoyable Nothing more fulfilling, nothing more purposeful in a believer's life than to be totally, unconditionally, fully in love with God. It is our purpose. It is our design. Uh, love, obviously, is not a cheap emotion. I know we've already been through uh, Valentine's Day, and so hopefully this doesn't dive too much into it. But this does passage deals a lot with love. Loving the Father, not loving the world. And so with that thought in mind, <clears throat> love is not just a, a cheap emotion, but instead it's something that we uh, do, we place value on, and so it takes effort. Um, I have learned over the years that I have been married to my wife that what communicates love to her is often far different than what I think communicates love to her. Yeah. 
so that sometimes I do something and I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be great. She's gonna, this is going to communicate so much love to her and she's just going to love it. And instead she gets irritated. Isn't that frustrating, men? When you, I know I'm not alone in this. When you do something, extra effort, put it in it, and you feel like, man, you're just rolling. Because for you it communicates love, but for her it doesn't. And so I've had to learn what I say is love, maybe not as much as love for her. Uh, Emerson Egridge in his masterful book, I think, Love and Respect, talks about that oftentimes women view the world through pink lenses and men view them through blue lenses. And so we can be looking at the same thing and yet perceiving it totally different. He uses the example of women saying, I have nothing to wear, which means I have nothing I like. Whereas men say, I have nothing to wear, which means men, I'm out of clothes. They're all dirty. I don't have anything available, right? We can look at the same statement, the same situation, and come to two very different conclusions. And so when I think about loving my wife, the Bible talks about this. Men, just give you a little bit of marriage advice here tonight. Not for me, from the Bible, amen? I've already confessed, I have no idea what I'm doing. But the Bible does say to dwell with your wife according to wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea of the text there in 1 Peter when he talks about that is kind of the idea of becoming a student at the school of your wife. Uh, of basically saying this, obviously what I'm saying is love, is not communicating love to you, so I need to study you. That sounds weird, but you understand. I need to learn you, and I need to study you, and I need to be sensitive to you so that I can communicate love in your language. And so it even talks about that there in the scriptures of the idea that we're to dwell with them according to knowledge and, and, and live peaceably with our wife. And if we're not, he says this, your prayers can be hindered. That's kind of scary that God places so much emphasis on there being harmony within the home that he, when he says there's disunity and, and disharmony and no love in the home, that even our prayers can be hindered. And, and so <clears throat> as I think about in a marriage, this idea of love and trying to communicate love, I've oftentimes learned this, to love my wife, I'm glad she's not in here because I'm going to say this wrong, but it's the only way I know how to say it. To love my wife takes work. Hear me out. The reason I'm saying that it takes work is because I have to be intentional about it. If I'm going to love my wife, it usually means I have to do it in such a way that it's different than what I would originally think would say love. And I have to think, what would best communicate love to my wife? And it takes energy. It takes work. So much so that I could literally say this, to love my wife properly, I must deny myself and seek to please her. I mean, that, that really is ultimately what true love is is seeking the better of the other person by love serving one another. So in our text here, John helps us understand the great blessing of what it means to love the Father. To love the Father, we ought to love Him the way that He has communicated to us to love Him, which in our text here tonight is this, to love the Father is to not love the world. 
if we're going to love the world and then love the Father, those two do not connect with one another. So let me go through uh, John's journey so far. Uh, just kind of give a review here a little bit of where we have been. Okay, the first one is the test of sin. If you want to back up there, we'll get these reviewed. Okay, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5-7 through seven, did this, the test of sin. Do you live in habitual sin with no repentance? Red flag, right? Amen. Number two, test of concealing. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 1 John 2, 2, which is this. Do you believe you are without sin or do you minimize the wickedness of sin? You say, well, sin's not a big deal. What's the big deal about sin? I've never sinned. I'm not a bad person. If that's the case, red flag. Number three, test of obedience. <clears throat> Do you have a desire to follow and obey the Word of God? It doesn't mean that we are perfect in our obedience, but it does mean this, the desire to obey is there. You, know, you ever find yourself living in disobedience and then like Paul in Romans 7, the man I want to be and the man I am, they're not connecting. And he gets frustrated. I want to do this, but now I'm doing this and I don't want to do that. And I wound up doing it. And he, oh, wretched man that I am. Yep. What is that? It's a man recognizing I'm struggling with sin, but there's a desire to do right and obey. That, that's a test of, of somebody who's truly a believer. Okay, number four, the test of love. Do you serve others? Do you pursue their benefit, their advancement, and their good? It's a test of love, particularly in regard to the brethren, love for the brethren. Okay. And then test number five, where we've been, which is where we were two weeks ago, which was this, a test of growth. In 1 John 2, 12 through 14, which is this. If somebody gets saved, the natural tendency is if you've been born again spiritually, is then you would grow. Just like when somebody is born physically, they start to grow. If they don't, we go, something's wrong. If you've been born spiritually, there should be some growth. Now, that doesn't mean that growth rates are different. And that ought to be encouraging for us, shouldn't it? The encouraging thing is, is some people might be super Christians overnight, but God doesn't expect that of you. God just expects you to grow. Amen. And that might be a slower rate of growth. But you know what I found? Sometimes the plants that take the longest to grow wind up being the most productive and the most beautiful in the end. Maybe it is that you've got a longer road to go and more growth that you need to happen over a longer period. But the sign of a saved person is not that they grow quickly. It's just that they're developing. They're, they're growing in Christ. Now, John's intention, obviously, is to give assurance to the believer that they are indeed saved. They have been flooded with false doctrine, and he wants them to be affirmed in the fact that they are in Christ and they are saved. Now, it's a comforting thing to know that Christians don't have to become perfect overnight, but God gives us grace to grow. Now, in these next three verses, John moves from an encouraging truth to a warning about the behavior of loving the world. Now, this is a warning, but we're going to present it in the case of there's a positive side of this as well, because you can hate the world, which is the negative side, which is what we should do. But the positive side is to love the Father. And that really is where the emphasis is on this text. So love the Father. Remember who John is writing to. These are saved Christian. He calls them little dear children. He has great love and affection for them. And he wants them to know the great joy 
of loving Christ with all their heart, soul, and mind. Remember, the Christian life is a never-ending pursuit of Jesus Christ, and he wants them to know the joy of that. So, to love the Father is in turn to not love the world. So that we can kind of say it this way, love for the world and love for the Father are exclusive. <clears throat> Wives, oh, let me ask you something here. Just ladies in general. If you're in a committed relationship with a man, whether it's marriage or a fiancé or maybe you're just dating, it's an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman. And then your man says, you know, I've got this other girl too, and I knew you'd be okay with that. So I was just going to let you know, you just need to be cool with this. Here's girl number two. We're good, right? How would that go, ladies? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That's good, Brother Gary. Brother Gary's letting us all know that's how he got his black eye. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that probably would be the... Uh, well, why? Because there's an expectation that the relationship is exclusive. Yes. Now, to the same degree of what emotions you would be feeling, think about our God who has said, I have an exclusive relationship with you, and you're either going to love me or you're going to love the world, I will not have it both. Right. It doesn't sound so harsh when you put it that way, because all of us feel the same way when we're talking about love in our life. God is not a jealous God in a negative sense. He's a jealous God in the fact that He loves us too much to let us choose wrong. Amen. And He is desirous of us and He pursues us. And so when we think about this idea of it being exclusive, you can't have both, you have to choose. Now this isn't the only verse that says this. I'll put these up on the screen, they're there, the reference is. Matthew 6, 24, a big long passage of Scripture here has been given about the difference of the world and the Father. And He sums it up this way when He says this in Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, when you read this verse, you're like, what in the world? Uh, you can't serve two masters. What is that talking about? Well, it's kind of this. If you ever have had two jobs at one time. How many of y'all ever had two jobs at one time before? Several in here. Uh, my, after my freshman year of college, I was working three jobs that summer. Now, inevitably, what happens when you have multiple masters or multiple jobs is you will begin to prefer one over the other. Now, this happened to me that summer where I went to one job and I was like, yes, this is the job I love. And then there was kind of the job where I was like, I can survive. And then there was another job where I was like, Lord, take me home. I don't want to be here. This is awful. This is the worst. And I can remember as the summer progressed... It got so much to the point where I was loving one and hating the other. I was holding to one and despising the other. Why? Because you can't do them both. You can't love them both equally. The man can't have two women in his life and love them both equally the same. It doesn't work that way. Our human emotion won't allow it. And so God in, in this passage is basically saying this. It's the same way with God. You can't have God and this world's goods, mammon, and say, well, I can just love them equally the same. 
It doesn't work that way. We don't have that capability. James 4.4 is another verse that says it this way, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now this verse takes it to another level where he basically says this, it's not only that you're choosing one thing over the other, he's simply saying this, that those two things are on the polar opposite ends of one another. They are enemies like light and darkness, right? The fire and water, these are polar opposites of one another. So in being a friend of the world, you have chosen then to be an enemy of God. And to be a friend of God is then choosing to be an enemy of the world. They are on polar opposite ends of one another. So then it raises an interesting question in my mind because John says it this way, love not the world. So the question then becomes this, what is the world? It's a good question to ask because we're just not going to take it for granted that everyone just knows. You got three options here. Only one of them is right. Option number one, we're talking about the planet. We're talking about the world. We're talking about the, the physical globe of the planet itself. <clears throat> now, I can understand love not the world, right? In the sense of uh, the earth that's here. But you know, even though our world is broken and sinful and fallen, it's still the beautiful creation of God that declares His glory. God himself in creation declared it very good. And so we would say this, although oftentimes in the Bible the world is referencing the world physical, that's not what John is talking about here in this text. He's not saying we ought to hate dirt and hate the air and walk out every day and raise our fist and curse the clouds. That's not what he's asking us to do. So the second option here, the people, the people that comprise the world. So often the world refers to the inhabitants of the planet, such as John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believed in Him should not perish. Well, who's He talking about with the world there? Well, He's talking about us. He's talking about people. So sometimes the word does refer to that. So is that what John is referring to here? Well, let's just take it to its conclusion. Are we supposed to walk around and hate people? Are we supposed to be the Grinch? You know, reading from the book, such and such who, I hate you, you know, and just going around hating on people and I hate you and you're terrible and you're awful and I just hate the world. I mean, that goes contradictory to almost every other ounce of scripture that we have. So obviously that seems to not be what's in mind either. So it leaves us with one option, the practice of this world system. When we're talking about the world here, we're talking about the way the world thinks the way the world operates, the way the world functions, the system that is this world, which is evil and against God. We can just look at the, um, if we just kind of take a, a, a reading of the winds of how our world are today, we would come to this conclusion, it is against God. So much so that we would say, if to be a friend of the world is to be the enemy of God, then the world must be something that is at war with God and at enmity with God and the enemy of God, like all these verses say. Well, come on now. Again, just casual viewing would allow us to see this. This world system 
And the way fallen man operates and functions and thinks and promotes, is it for God or against God? It's against him. Quite heavily so that there are those that are against it. Sinful attitudes and the values of fallen man are completely against our God. A commentator, Marshall, said it this way, world here signifies more usually mankind organized in rebellion against God. So he's talking about the world here. He's talking about the world system that has organized itself together to raise its fist to God and saying, no, that is what John is talking about here. So he then goes on and he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, again, there could be a whole development of the things that are in the world. But in my opinion, he defines what those are in verse number 16. In verse 16, he goes on and says, for all that is in the world. So what are the things that are in the world? Well, the things that are in the world in verse 16 are there's three of them that he gives us. And we can identify these as markers of the flesh or things of this fallen world system that people who are ungodly and are shaking their fist at God and saying no, that they are identified and attracted to. Now, unfortunately, you and I still live in fallen flesh and we can struggle with these very things. Okay, so as we go through this, understand that. The first thing is the lust of the flesh or what we might call this the assault from within. Did you know you have a traitor living in your house? And it's you. Every day when you look at the mirror, you know what your biggest problem usually is? You. <laughs> a lot of times we like to blame our spouse. We like to blame our kids. We like to blame the coworker. We like to blame uh, the weather. We like to blame the devil. Oh, he gets blamed for a lot of things. And I'll tell you, he is the enemy of the believer, and he ought to be blamed for a lot of things. But let's be honest. We blame the devil for a lot of our own dumb decisions. Yeah. Yep. The greatest enemy that oftentimes we face as believers is none of those things because we have the victory over a lot of those things. The thing we still struggle with every day is this guy, us, our flesh. And we look at that enemy. We have a traitor on the inside where we are assaulted from the within. When we think about somebody who is in the world, though, we understand that the lust of the flesh is clearly seen. Yep, absolutely. Desire is often something that we struggle with as believers. When we think about the sinfulness and wrong here, <clears throat> that uh, this lust of the flesh, think about it in the sense that sometimes it's not even bad things like food, water, shelter. God created us with those and they're not necessarily bad that our flesh desires them. But the problem with the lust of the flesh is it takes those normal desires that God has given us and it makes them sinful. Let me give you a, a few examples here. There's nothing wrong with food. Praise the Lord, it's fantastic, amen? I'm thankful God gave us taste buds. Did you know you would function just fine without being able to taste the food that you eat? That is a blessing that God gave us to be able to enjoy all the different flavors and tastes that we have. But how often... Does the lust of the flesh take something that is good and make it something that's evil? Gluttony. Stuffing our face. Being selfish and greedy. What about the shelter that we have? Becomes that of covetousness and desiring what other people have. Oh, I wish I had their stuff. 
the desire of sexual things. Those are given by God. There's nothing wrong with that. Fire in the fireplace is good. It's in the right place. But come on, our world has a perversion of God's design for one man, one woman exclusively for life and has a perversion of that. Now, this is the person who says, I don't care what God wants. This is what I want. That's the lust of the flesh, the desire that says, I want this. Give it to me. I'm greedy. Give it to me. I desire it. Okay. The second thing that he mentions this is the lust of the eyes. This is the assault from without. The assault from without. This is an unholy desire for things we do not have. We might call this covetousness. You know, desiring something that doesn't belong to us and rightfully belongs to someone else. This is when we see something we want, desire, and we must have. A good biblical example of this, Eve saw the fruit that it was to be one that desired to make one wise, and she goes, I want that. Desire, that was the lust of the eyes. David saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof, and he took her as his own. Lust of the eyes. Achan saw the garments and the gold that was in Jericho, and he hid him in his tent and said, I want these things. I see it. I want it. God's design doesn't matter. I must have that which I have seen. Lust of the flesh, I feel like I desire this. I have to have it. I'm burning on the inside. I'm going to take it. Lust of the eyes, I've seen it. I desire it. I want it. I'll take it. These are earmarkers of what the world looks like. But the last thing I think is probably one of the most predominant, which is this, the pride of life. This is the arrogance that a person feels about what they have or what they do. Unholy pride in things one has. The person who seeks to impress everyone he meets with his own non-existent importance. Desiring to get credit or glory for things that others or God did, desiring for others to worship us or hold us in excess esteem, to make a name for ourselves, to climb the ladder, to be valued above others, desiring to have our position and power exalted above all else. You remember what Satan said in Isaiah 14, 14, I will ascend. I will be like the most high. I will do these things. What do you say that for? Well, it's pride. So it's pride that got Satan kicked out of heaven. Jesus pointed to the pride of those in the religious crowd. Actually, probably one of the things I think that stuck so much in the nostrils of Jesus Christ on his earthly ministry was when the religious crowd walked around with their nose stuck in the air and said, look how religious we are. Jesus could not stomach that. Pride stinks in the ears of our God, uh, in the nose of our God. I know who I am, what I've done. I deserve it. I need to be recognized. You better appreciate me and see me for who I am. Doesn't that sound like our world today? Yes. Validate me. Approve of my poor choices. Put your stamp of approval on all the negative things that I've been doing. If, if you see in our world system the, the, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and a system that is so engrossed in those things, me, 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 and it is raising the fist to God and it's saying this, no to God. Because God's design is quite the opposite of the world's lust. It's quite in opposition to it. So though we could say it this way, they're exclusive. The world stands in direct contrast to the Father. So here's a great question, why should I choose the Father? <laughs> well, I hope this is kind of self-explanatory, but John gives us an answer here uh, in our text. 
You know, you think about it. You have the Father, and He says this. Listen, love the Father. And then by choosing to love the Father, you are rejecting the world. Don't love the world. Don't love the things of this world. The lust of the eyes. The, the lust of the flesh. The pride of life. Don't allow those things in your life. Instead, have a passion and a heart and a love for God. Well, why does he say that? Why should I choose the Father over the world? The world seems really appealing. Well, he gives a few answers for us. First is this. To not choose the Father is by default to choose the world. If you've read this book, you would understand that any choice to give in to the lust of the eyes, flesh, and pride of life has devastating results. When this world system plays itself out to its end conclusion, you have broken lives, broken relationships, hurtness. I'm telling you, it is nothing good that exists over here. Now, here's the thing. John is writing to these believers and he's giving them this encouragement. Choose to love the Father because if you don't choose to love the Father, you by default are going to give in to the world. You're going to love one or the other. You're going to hold the one and despise the other. And if you're not going to choose the Father by default, our sinful flesh will lead us in the direction of this world. But here's, I think, the second thing that he gives us, which is this. The world is doomed. He says it so clearly there in verse number 17. He says, the world's going to pass away, the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He's simply saying this, listen, you know one day everything that's in this world system, and this is a little old, but I'll just go ahead and say it. One day, no one will care what is happening with a Kardashian. One day, no one will care who got a rose on The Bachelor, Bachelorette or whatever those shows are. One day, no one will care who was the idol on American Idol. One day, those will not be the predominant thing that everyone is so focused on. One day, no one will care who won the Super Bowl. One day, some of you are like, I don't care now. One day, there will be no Swifties. Nobody will be talking about Taylor Swift. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> we're talking about kind of in the entertainment world with a lot of those things. And, and listen, we can go beyond that. One day, nobody's going to be looking at the stocks and the stock market. One day, nobody's going to have houses and lands and be paying for stuff. Actually, you know what the Bible says what's going to happen to this earth that we are standing on? And everything that's on it, all the gold, the silver, the platinum, the, the value, the, the fame, everything that's on this earth is going to burn up. Now, that sounds like really nihilistic and like pessimistic and awful, but that's what the book says. And if you're a believer like I am, then you know this. It's not a nihilistic, evil, pessimistic view. It's actually great encouragement Amen. to understand we don't really need to place a whole lot of value in this earth because we've got a new heaven and a new earth that's coming where we will rule and reign with God himself and, and he will be the light. And, and man, I'm telling you, if you start reading about what new Jerusalem looks like and the beauty of the new heaven and new earth, you go, this one is nothing compared to what that's going to be. Amen. Mm, it's going to be awesome. You, you've heard the joke before. I mean, everyone fights over resources here on this earth like gold and silver, and they're paving streets with the stuff up there. I mean, literally, think about that. There's no monetary value to those things. It's just 
stuff that we place so much value here on this earth, in there he says, says this, there's no value to it. It's just, it means nothing. It just shows the great significance of how awesome and wonderful that place is. So here's, here's what John is ultimately saying is this, why would you choose the world that's going to be destroyed and it's going to be burned up? Why not choose love of the Father and the treasure that cannot be wiped away? It can be done away with. It. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It won't, it won't vanish away. It, it continues. So the question here then becomes tonight, do you love the Father? So to love the Father is in turn to not love the world. So on the back of your handout tonight, don't worry, this isn't a whole nother sermon. I'm just going to read through these real, real quick. But I do want to give you this. You need to make a choice. Who do you love? The Father or the world? Where is your affection set at here tonight? Is it on the world and the things of the world and the attitude of the world? Or is it on Christ? Now, again, these are just, these are meant to be stimulating questions. If you can't put a check mark by all these, it doesn't mean you're bad or you love the world or you hate God or you're anti-God. It just is simply something to get us thinking. Because these are great questions to ask. Do I truly love the Father? If I do, I ought to be pursuing Him and not pursuing these other things. There's nothing wrong with things that are in the world that are not sinful, sports and entertainment and things like that. But don't allow that to become your heart. Don't be overrun with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and pride of life. Those are the things of the world. He says those are at enmity against God. No, pursue Christ in Christ-likeness. Let me read these real quick. First one is this. Do you go to church faithfully? Well, you're here on Wednesday night. Praise the Lord. Good job with that. Number two, do you actually feel like going to God's house? Now, I understand sometimes you don't feel like it and you pick yourself up by the seat of the britches and you say, we're going to church, right? But there ought to be a desire to hear from God and be around God's people. Number three, do you read your Bible every day? Number four, do you have a desire to read the scriptures or is it just a duty? Again, I understand some days it can just be a duty. There ought to be some desire there. Number five, do you spend time in real worship with God? Dedicated time to be enthralled with Him. Number six, can you honestly say that you love God with all your heart and your mind and all your soul? Is He the most important thing to you? Again, this isn't accusatory. We're just asking questions. You being honest with yourself and ask the question, is God really the most important thing in your life? Okay. <clears throat> Number seven there, do you fear God? Number eight, do you give financially from a cheerful heart to the Lord? Number nine, do you see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Number ten, do you find ways to serve the Lord, not out of obligation or guilt, but because you love the Lord? Number eleven, does sin and this corrupt world grieve you? Do you shed tears of godly sorrow? Or grieve over your sin? Maybe a follow-up question on that. Do you find yourself grieved over what's going on in the world? Or do you find yourself entertained by it? It's a telling question, isn't it? Yep, very telling. Number 12, do you pursue telling others about God's amazing grace? Are you actively engaged, uh, engaging others about salvation? And then number 13, do you love the things that God loves? Holiness, church, the brethren, His law, His word. Do you love those things? It's a good, just a litmus test of asking the question, do I have a love for the world or do I have a love for the Father?
Now listen, those are diametrically opposed to one another. And we constantly are going to struggle, according to Galatians chapter 5, with this tug of war of worldliness and wanting to be righteous. Okay? So every day you need to make a choice to love the Father. Just like as men, as us husbands, we have to make a choice every day to love our wife. It wasn't a one-time decision at the altar. It's an everyday choice to get up and love her the way she deserves to be loved. In the same way, we have to make a choice to love God as He has dictated to us that He is to be loved. And we need to reject the world. Let's all stand together as we come to a time of